Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive function. This podcast is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. So join us as we explore executive function and the science of learning. And now, here's your host, the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath. Welcome back to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive function. I'm your host, Sucheta Kamath. I believe we have been on this journey for a while, talking about importance and value of executive function over the lifespan. Uh, we are going to dive in today with a important age, which is preschoolers, and then eventually we're going to ramp up and talk about uh, even uh, learning and teaching uh, in uh, middle school, high school, and college. Uh, you know, as as I was thinking, uh, preparing for this podcast episode, um, a story came to my mind. Uh, when my children were little, um, I used to carpool with a friend of mine, and um, she came to the door to pick up my son, and she came into the kitchen and saw me packing uh, lunch. Uh, they, they went to um, a preschool, and uh, they uh, children brought lunch from home. And um, I was putting real utensils uh, along with the sandwiches and, and fruit. And she said, you're putting real silverware? And uh, I said, I didn't understand her question. I said, of course I do. And she she was so surprised. And she said, your son doesn't throw it into, into trash? I said, you mean like the core of an apple? She said, no, like he doesn't throw the utensils in the trash. And I said, no, I've told him not to. <laughs> and um, so she was so surprised because she showed me that she was packing a brown bag with everything disposable because her son would, as soon as the lunch would be over, he would take his whole bag and throw it into trash. So each day, so this happened for several days. So mom kept replacing the bag and the plastic spoon. Uh, I mean, started with a you know steel spoon to plastic, then eventually <laughs> throwable. And that was such a slice of life that taught me uh, or alerted me that sometimes we take these things for granted, that when we are uh, encountering children who are yet to develop skills, their behaviors are indicative of their knowledge. And when somebody, uh, if a child throws plastic utensils into trash or real utensils, the parent adapted and she never taught the kid. <laughs> and, and so anyway, that, that story uh, propped into my head uh, because of the expert that I'm going to talk to today who's going to shed light on this very important point of why certain children throw <laughs> their entire lunch bag and the lunch into trash while, while other children learn to bring it home. So it's a great pleasure and joy to introduce Dr. Laura Reinhardt. She is an assistant researcher at the Center for Dyslexia, Diverse Learners, and Social Justice at the University of California, Los Angeles. Uh, she has received her MEd and PhD from UCLA, uh, UCLA's Department of Education. Her current research focuses on dyslexia, early literacy assessment, and reading interventions, and children's executive function skills. Um, she has articles that have been published in peer-reviewed publications, including uh, the Reading League Journal and the Journal of Emotional and Behavioral Disorders. Uh, and she is a former teacher, and she brings her wisdom uh, from that perspective as well as a researcher. So it's such a joy and pleasure to have you on the podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, and thank you for that story about the children with the lunches. I think that's such a good example of executive functioning skills and early executive functioning skills. And perhaps parents and even teachers don't think of it in that way. They think, well, you know, maybe this is too difficult for the child to, you know, remember or um, to inhibit, you know, throwing the whole, um, the, the silverware away. But I think that there are ways, I mean, these skills are very malleable. That's one thing that we learn. 
Um, and just to go back a little bit, you know, thinking about executive functioning skills, when I went to write this paper on, you know, uh, describing, measuring and improving children's executive functioning skills in preschool, what became really challenging was just defining executive functioning skills. Many people have, you know, even researchers, different ways to, you know, um, capture these these skills that are so important and then underline uh, underlie a lot of the skills that um, children also are learning in school like math and and reading and, and just um, you know pro-social behaviors but um, the way it's typically broken down is it's you know working memory which is kind of remembering um, uh, information that's that's given to you and also being able to adapt it so I think in the lunch box scenario that would be like oh yeah you know my mom said don't don't throw that away or maybe the teacher would have a third time don't throw it away (laughs) and then um you know there's inhibition so inhibition means you know you have this initial desire to do something but you inhibit it and in the lunch scenario that would be you know the child thinking oh i'm done you know i see other children throwing things away but you know to inhibit that response to say nope i'm i'm going to bring this home this is going to go somewhere else and then uh the set shifting like being cognitively flexible and i think that also could be being flexible where um your friend that you know did allow the child to to throw the the whole thing away but um you know later she might have given the child silverware and said no nope, you need to bring this home so being able to be cognitive cognitively flexible is also critical and i think that's that's a really important skill um so all of those skills are really being um developed in preschool uh as you mentioned you know this prefrontal cortex this is a critical time for it. And so all these skills are coming online and children are improving them every year. When you measure um, children on these skills at three and four and five, they, they just, they continue to get better. Uh, but we can provide settings and opportunities for them to um, help them get better at even uh, faster rates and, and have more experience so that they have opportunities to practice these skills. I think I really like uh, 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 you taking the time to define executive function because I think, you know, literature talks about more than 30 definitions of it and it can get often confusing. But I think that these three important features of working memory inhibition and mental flexibility sounds really great. And um, before we proceed, I was wondering if we could pause and talk a little bit about your own executive function skills uh, as a child or as a um you know, uh, young adult professional. Uh, and uh, what did you, when do you think you became aware of yourself as a learner and a thinker? And um, when did you come about strategizing for learning? Oh, great question. Um, well, I think that um, I, I didn't think so much about executive functioning skills. And, you know, that wasn't part of of my background and in, in teacher training, they simply don't talk about it, or at least the teacher training I did. But I think once I got into the classroom and all the demands of, you know, w- working uh, with children and families and, you know, in a kind of chaotic school system, I started to look for strategies so that I could improve. Um, and so I think that, um, so if I think about the the three main executive functioning skills, uh, probably my working memory is just about average. <laughs> and I think that, um, you know, my inhibition is pretty good, uh, but probably also maybe around average. But I think something that I might be a little better in that really helped me with grad school is... Um, the cognitive flexibility. I think I went into graduate school because I was working with um, high school students that really struggled with reading. And I thought, I want to go to graduate school to um, create these reading curriculum that really help kids that are in high school, that are multiple years behind, because there's nothing really that age appropriate for them. But then when I got to graduate school, I learned that, you know, that probably a lot of these um, individuals had 
uh, dyslexia, perhaps. And really what would be very helpful is early intervention to prevent (laughs) what was happening. So I think I kind of pivoted towards younger students and I think graduate school is really good for someone like me that had a bit of a career and then went back. I think that cognitive flexibility really helped me kind of recalibrate because there was a lot of things that I had learned from experience, but literature shows, you know, the academic literature shows that that was just my experience. It's not really the case. So I had a couple of times where I really had to rethink my goals, recalibrate what I was doing and sometimes start from scratch. And I I think cognitive flexibility really helped with that. Yeah, you know, I'm probably going to say uh, I have a probably similar profile, uh, but only difference is my working memory is probably below average. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm I'm great at strategizing and I'm really good at, uh, my insight is probably the most helpful feature of my cognitive profile, I would say. <laughs> I mean, I'm not claiming all the insight, but I'm always thinking about what what what's my blind spot. So now that you mentioned dyslexia, and that's your another area of expertise, I was wondering if you could um, connect, maybe define uh, dyslexia, and um, what is the interplay between executive function and dyslexia, or this, uh, or and literacy? And maybe you can talk about both literacy and uh, dyslexia together. And uh, they, there is an interplay, but does one have a stronger hold on the other, or it's equal? If we can even think that way. Right. So I think of executive functioning skills as kind of these domain general skills. They're things that, you know, skills you have to have to be successful in many things, academically, social, emotionally. And so underlying the um, reading ability are, if you look at children or, you know, adolescents or adults that are um, doing well academically, they do really well in reading, um, they, they tend to have strong executive functioning skills. But And when they look at very young preschool children and you follow them longitudinally, you see the ones with the best executive functioning skills tend to be the ones that that go on to have, you know, high scores and and literacy assessments. Um, But I do think that there is room for um, compensating so that um, children that may not have very strong executive functioning skills, that's where the teaching really matters. So, you know, children come into the classroom in kindergarten, they, they may know their letters and sounds. And if they have really strong executive functioning skills, they'll, they'll be able to pick up reading pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if you think about um, cognitive flexibility, you know, something like the, the T, you think it makes the T. Down. And then you learn the TH and you think, oh, no, it's, you know, you have to be very flexible with, you know, uh, these symbols can mean multiple things. I mean, you know, as a speech language pathologist, how confusing that can be. And so children with that cognitive flexibility, they'll be able to, to map the different sounds, especially the vowels. Um, you know, sometimes the A says A, sometimes it says ah, sometimes it says something totally different. Um, that, that skill really helps with reading. Um, working memory is always really important, you know, paying attention to the teacher it, when, um, you know, in being able to, to remember what was taught. And then also, um, you know, inhibition, just the skill to, to sit down and really focus on, on reading. So these executive functioning skills tend to lead to better outcomes in literacy. Um, with dyslexia, it's a little bit different because, you know, it's a brain-based um, challenge with reading, often at the word level, where children are kind of um, struggling to break words down into their sounds, um, you know, the phonological awareness, you know, thinking of socks as or a better example, six, you know, we think S-I-X, you know, three sounds, but really it's four sounds, you know, it's the, the uh, S sound, the I sound, the K sound, and the S sound for six. So, you know, being aware that it really is four sounds and, you know, linking that on to the word, a lot of children with dyslexia will get more caught up in that than, than children with, without dyslexia. 
Um, so the relationship between executive functioning skills and dyslexia is less clear, but with as with a lot of other things, high executive functioning skills, even for an individual with dyslexia, will lead to better um, academic, including literacy outcomes. And that makes sense. And, you know, as we think about uh, these early years when children enter preschool and uh, the learning environment in, is so rich and uh, there are lots of opportunities uh, and those with strong executive function actually are able to engage with those learning opportunities. And that requires executive function. Uh, and of course, we know that from research that these children tend to be uh, more engaged. They listen to instructions. They uh, don't cause disruption because they can stay on task. Um, they um, actually follow the lead of the teacher or cue from the teacher. Uh, is is that something similar with children with dyslexia? So their inability to acquire that relationship between sound and symbol and understand these multiple rules, uh, same uh, letter, um, do do they also suffer from these disadvantages that children with this exec executive function challenges have, which is they are not able to be interactive mm -hmm. in the learning environment? Or is that more related to with executive function problems? That's a good question. I mean, we do see what... Uh, what you described to me sounds a little bit like ADHD. Yeah. If, if you think about, you know, ADHD as being more, uh, you know, behavioral and you do see a high overlap of dyslexia and ADHD. So whether those are two disorders or they're one disorder kind of, you know, impacting the, the other one, I, I think that um, that's a little difficult to tease apart, but I think when you do see, dyslexia, which kind of may um, come online, particularly uh, during reading, then you also may see these these behaviors that aren't very helpful that are kind of behaviors we would think of, um, you know, related to ADHD. And there is a, a whole lot of overlap. Hmm. So then maybe can you share a little bit about why, uh, you know, strong executive function skills are linked to impulse control, managing emotional outbursts, and then even uh, engaging or following through with instructions. And that has bearing on not just academic, but non-academic skills as well. Um, wh why, what do you think about uh, is the proposed relationship between executive function and other um, you know, set of skills such as vocabulary building, language ex expansion, a theory of mind, and and, and even this uh, moral uh, doing the right thing when the that right thing is hard. You know, you're so tempted to grab that toy from somebody, but just saying, no, I'll just ask politely, right? So what is the relationship there? Right. Um, well, I think the things you described have a lot to do with inhibition. Mm -hmm. So um, in executive functioning skills, you know, there's this, um, you know, some people call it cold and then hot ex executive functioning skills and colder, the more cognitive, you know, can I read you a list of numbers and can you give it back to me backwards? You know, it doesn't uh, tap into emotion, but then there are, you know, inhibition tests with, for executive functioning that are more hot, where there's this gift wrap test where the researcher will, um, you know, wrap a gift and they, they see if the, the children, um, the, they look at the gift or they peek when they're told not <laughs> I to I love peak. that study. Or there's the famous marshmallow test. <laughs> I'm sure your listeners know uh, about the marshmallow test. Um, but so these things really are, I mean, I think researchers think of it as an inhibition, maybe hot in inhibition. Um, and those skills are really important because, you know, if you think about it, um, I think in terms of relationships, it's important because in the preschool classroom or in elementary school and beyond, you know, relationships are important. You think about relationships with your friends and if it's the kid that blows out your birthday candle or takes your toy or, you know, isn't flexible with whose turn it is, which are a lot of inhibition skills, that's going to, it's going to be hard for the child. And I think they're going to have, um, a, a less a less good time at, at school you know it's not going to be as fun and then the teacher the teacher um you know this will prompt the teacher to 
you know, uh, remind the the student, reprimand the student, you know, it's circle time now or crisscross applesauce, <laughs> you know, not bouncing up and down. Um, and so I think that both of these things can really lead to, you know, more or less academic success. Um, at the same time, you know, I've been in classrooms lately um, in more maybe you want to call them progressive schools in Los Angeles, where I am, where they really are saying, you know, what if we do have a bouncy ball for the child to sit on during circle time? You know, that that's okay. Um, or, you know, they think about um, sitting in your canoe for the children in the circle and they, they get to like rock it back and forth a little bit. And then they, they um, have some time to be a little more still. So I think, Helping children with inhibition is really important. You know, some children will just walk into the classroom with higher skills, but for those children that need support, I think there are a lot of great opportunities for for teachers to to help them with that kind of scaffolded and you know provide a safety net for you know maybe maybe it wasn't modeled for them at home, so they they really need extra modeling at school. Yeah, and I think to to your point. Uh... I just love uh, at the start that you had mentioned, you know, these are malleable skills. So not only they're going to grow and develop because of the experience and exposure, but the real crux of the matter is they're going to grow because of training and and specific support. So I love these two examples that you gave about even if inhibition is hard, then create environments where they get to practice that inhibition. Um, So uh, I know maybe we, we, uh, before we get, into a little bit more details about the interventions for preschool children. Uh, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how do we assess these uh, executive function skills in preschool children? Um, And, you know, when I started my career close to 25, 30 years ago, number one, we did not call them, I mean, we were doing higher order language skills we were talking about. We did not call executive function and cognition was separate from language or, you know, people had. And secondly, I think there was also static versus dynamic aspects of testing executive function, right? If you give clear instructions that compensates for requiring mental flexibility to th- shift and think about different alternatives. So I'm just curious, um, now that so much research is out there that talks about specific ways of testing, even like a, a flanker test. And and so I'm wondering um, if you could maybe uh, share a few tests, uh, ways that children in preschool can be tested. And secondly, what are your thoughts about the gap that exists between um, as as you mentioned, you became a you were a teacher. I'm a speech and language pathologist, but none of my training involved training in executive function. So even um, because I specialized in brain injury, my assessment, uh, you know, the tool sets come from very different parts of of these silos that we operate in. So how do we expect teachers to assess these skills may, when they may not even have had any training in that. So that's a second question, but maybe first we can talk a little bit about assessment. What does it entail? <laughs> sure. Um, so I think, you know, there are these very old clinical cognitive as- assessments that, you you know, you might need some more training to, to give a child, you know, um, like a flanker task or something like a day-night task where, you know, the children, the child sees a picture moon, they need to say day and they see a sun, they need to say night. So, you know, something getting at the the inhibition um, and, you know, the the working memory with the rule and the cognitive flexibility. So those things, um, you know, can, can be done. um, And, but I think that the, the better task to do and kind of, you know, the more interesting and maybe more useful for what children are actually doing in the classroom is something like the um, the head, toes, knees, shoulder task, if you're familiar with that. So children, you say, you know, touch your head, touch your toes, touch your knees, touch your shoulders. And, you know, they, they learn how to do that. And of course it it really matters for, um, you know, which age. So children get really good at this as they get much older, but then the challenging part is, you know, at some point you say, touch your head and they need to touch their toes. And so if you think about it, that's tapping into the all three executive functioning skills. So needs a working memory of 
to remember what the assessor says. They need the cognitive flexibility to say, you know, even though they, they said, hey, you know, I, I need to touch my toes. Um, and they need the inhibition to actually follow through. And even though, you know, they their initial response would be to touch their head, they, they need to touch their toes. So that's been, that task has been shown to be related to a lot of, you know, academic and social emotional skills. And I think it's kind of fun for the children to do. And um, it, it can give a, a teacher some some insight into where the children are with their executive functioning skills. That's great. And and I think uh, to to your point, you know, Simon Says, for example, age-old tested a good game. Yeah. It's not a so much test, but it, it's a good way to kind of keep training children to do that as well. Uh, so now that, uh, you know, it's so interesting um, – can you maybe talk a little bit about the disadvantages created by behaviors uh, of this dysregulation um, uh, and how um, uh, a huge piece in preschool uh, of executive function is pro-social behavior, how included you get, and, and rather you get quickly become a burden on the teacher or get excluded <laughs> because of your inappropriateness or you're just not going with the flow. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, how does that um, kind of determine the trajectory of that student down the road, not just preschool? Right. Um, so I have another paper on um, children who receive um, special education services for um, ADHD. And I took a big national data set and I did some regressions, you know, to see which skills and um, predicted which children would be, I looked at them in kindergarten to see which children would be identified with ADHD and need special education services in, in fourth grade. Some um, people, uh, children have ADHD, but they don't need special education services. This was a, a higher group of, of children with ADHD. And I found that, you know, one of the biggest predictors was, um, you know, working memory was a even though it's, it's not typically assessed, um, I did have the, the um, children's working memory skills in kindergarten. That was a significant predictor. Um, but another significant predictor was um, the conflict with the teacher in kindergarten. And I thought that was interesting because, you know, kindergarten usually is a, a very positive time for a lot of children. They have typically a positive relationship with their kindergarten teacher, but children that went on to receive services for ADHD, even in kindergarten, had a tough time um, with their teacher. And this was a teacher report. So the teacher reported that, you know, the child didn't follow directions. And then even more personally, that, you know, the child didn't like them, hmm. or they just, they, they really struggled with that, that interpersonal um, relationship. Um, and there's been some work showing that, you know, the relationship that uh, students have with their teacher can be a protective factor. And it's a really important factor looking at um, overall academic achievement. So I see this as an area of opportunity where um, potential training for teachers to help them help the children, but also understand kind of some of these um, challenges that children with ADHD have and maybe make the classroom a little more welcoming and, and the relationship a little bit stronger with the teacher. Can we um, uh, talk a little bit about this uh, piece? Um, you know, I'm I'm going through a um, a trauma informed schools uh, course right now, and it's so interesting. It comes down to people keeping their own emotions in check before they deal with dysregulated children, and and I feel that one of the common problems um, it's it's goal block, right? So as a teacher uh, who's tasked to teach uh, 15 to 20 kids in the classroom, or maybe 10 to 12 kids. Um, uh, he or she has an agenda and it, that goal-directed, focused task, and children who are dysregulated become a little burden. Uh, and I don't mean in a bad way. It's a nature of the learning dynamic communities. But a persistent behavior of a kid that is not cooperative, so not only not staying on task, but is not verbally redirected, becomes a huge problem for the teacher, and it can lead to annoyance. And so to me, 
annoyed teacher is less likely to be vested in a kid who is dysregulated, but that teacher's investment is so meaningful to that child's progress. So as you're saying, you know, these are protective factors. How do we address this very tricky balance uh, when the teacher needs to have some sort of acumen to tolerate uh, the shenanigans of this dysregulated child? (laughs) Am I getting this right? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, And, you know, what's interesting is, okay, so not, I'm not totally answering your question, but I'll come back to it. So I was a high school teacher and I had kids that, um, you know, I definitely had some students who really, you know, struggled. I was, and I was working in a um, low resource part of Los Angeles. So now I know that those kids had a ton of trauma. And I think that, you know, that was one of the driving factors of of some of these behaviors that were really frustrating to me. I had some kid eat my lunch one day. (laughs) I mean, think about how frustrating that is. You, you know, he's like, yeah, I I ate your lunch. (laughs) I was really upset. But uh, so it's, it's hard to, to deal with these students, but I will tell you, I think about that child a lot. Um, You know, now he's a young man, but I, I never forgot him and I'll never forget him. He really made um, an impact on me. I, I think a lot about, you know, I wonder what he's doing. What could I have done better? So I wonder if, you know, they, they really crave attention and the strategies that they use work because I remember that, that child really, that really well for younger children. You know, I wonder if, um, this is a hypothesis I, I have, but if allowing, and I know how challenging this can be in a school, but allowing the, the teacher to get to know the child a little bit, a little bit about the family would help me with that student, mm-hmm. you know, the one that ate my lunch, <laughs> was, uh, challenging for me was meeting his mother, learning a lot about uh, her background, um, you know, what was going on, her job was really intense. There was a lot of moving around. There was a lot of things going on with the family. But for me, that helped me understand the child a little bit more. And I wonder if having the opportunity to know, you know, who are these, this child's more about their, their friends, more about their family, more about what makes them frustrated mm. because they're in your classroom or, you know, maybe five, six hours a day, but the majority of their life, they're at home. What is that home environment like? And, you know, the behaviors that they've developed to, you know, manage their home life might not be very helpful for the school setting. But for me, understanding that really helped a, a bit. You know, that's such a um, uh, such an important point that I think ultimately the relationship is a two-way channel and uh, that requires time. And if the only relationship you have with the student is through their dysregulation, there is no re- that is not a relationship. But if you uh, actually have gotten to know a little bit, and uh, another factor that I find is very interesting is teachers with good sense of humor or a little bit light on their feet or teachers don't take everything so seriously <laughs> that it's not directed against them uh, also can be very, very useful. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and also I think, um, uh, lastly, you know, I think um, such a powerful way uh, if you engaged other students to help in promoting regulation in the student who is misbehaving can be also very useful, right? Um, so as you, uh, yeah. Because these children, sorry, just I was thinking that even though they may not be well liked by their peers, I do think they really want that. A, a lot of them really do crave that. So I think, yeah, getting peers on board is a one um, is, is is another great strategy. So now that we we kind of have um, really a good way to understand the challenge of. Being a preschooler, believe it or not, <laughs> who would think being a preschooler will be so hard? 
But what what are some of the interventions, or if you can give examples of some successful interventions that have been used? Um, and you mentioned a few uh, a, a little bit uh, a while ago, but it might be great to just talk a little bit about that and how uh, why they t- uh, seem to be effective might be very helpful. Sure. So for preschool, I think, um, you know, there have been a lot of um, researchers and studies that have focused on improving children's executive functioning skills. And some of them have, you know, been more successful than others. But really, the kind of the core components that I see is really helping children develop their executive functioning skills in preschool have been, um, you know, really focused on kind of emotional Mm. regulation, which is, you know, it's kind of related to inhibition, um, but it does help the children with their emotional regulation, um, uh, interventions that actually bring the parents in. Because like I was saying, you know, children, they spend so much time at home with their parents, with their family. So having a parent component um, that's helpful, you know, really teaching teachers to understand the developmental stages, that's helpful. Um, and just, you know, um, one's programs that really see the, the child holistically, um, you know, the idea of improving a child's working memory by just making them memorize more and more numbers, that's not necessarily the most helpful. What, what turns out to be helpful are some of these programs that, um, you know, maybe they're not going to get better at um, Simon Says, but, you know, maybe they are learning some of these these self-regulation skills that are so important and will help them so much when they get to kindergarten. And you know, uh, I have developed a curriculum called EXQ. It's an executive function curriculum from grade 6 to 12. And in one of the districts, uh, we deployed it in, in a uh, semi-urban uh, district in uh, in state of Georgia. And it was very interesting. I was talking to the superintendent and uh, uh, they have lots of uh, fa- um, children um, uh, who are uh, receiving free and reduced lunches. And these infractions of dysregulated behaviors uh, uh, were notable quite often. Uh, and so they made a policy change that instead of sending the child home, they made parents come and take a class. So the child never uh, missed the opportunity for learning, but the consequence was also that there was more education offered. And they saw, saw great results by shifting that type of uh, strategy at a policy level. So I just feel that, you know, there's some innovative ways that we can think about as a community, because I think um, what I don't uh, like um to see is the concrete ways people think that you're either in or you're out. You are behaving well or you're misbehaving. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because trauma also makes children appear as if they're misbehaving, but they could be stress behaving. Uh, and so ha- I think having this kind of discre- discernment uh, can actually allow the roots to take place. As you said, that emotional regulation could be because there's just chaos in 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 the background that we may not be privy to. And to your early point, earlier point, just getting to know the parent, as you said, you know, if somebody's eating my lunch, maybe I need to have a talk. Should I bring two lunches? <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. Um, I I think yeah, getting to know the the background, um, you know, seeing how you know I am not you know, to use a psychological term, like differentiated from, from the child or, you know, I'm being triggered by, by the student, like being really aware of your own mental health, your own background and whatever you bring into the classroom is huge. So I think for teachers, this is really important. Um, you know, when I was a teacher, I did a, um, a Vipassana course, a 10 day silent meditation <laughs> retreat. Um, when I, um, was a teacher, I was able to do it over the, the uh, holiday break. And that really Can you share a little me. bit about the Vipassana? Um, Some of our listeners may uh, not have heard the practice. I'm very familiar with it, but sure. it would be great uh, to... Oh, okay. Um, I actually did it in Georgia, yes. down in Jessup. I think the uh, center is, is still there. And um, so Vipassana... I think the traditional one uh, taught by Goenka is you need to do a 10 day silent meditation retreat. It's, you don't, that's where you start. And, um, 
it, it sounds really overwhelming. And I would say that for me, it was really challenging initially, but, you know, you spend a lot of time, many, many hours just sitting and breathing and focusing on your breath and always going back to your breath whenever I guess I become dysregulated, you know, there's a thought that that comes up that's uncomfortable for me, you know, focus on your breath and you know, it makes it a little bit easier to kind of process these, um, you know, unhelpful thoughts or, or something that that's in your life that's out of your control. And I found that that meditation, when I went back, it really helped me with my students. I was a little less triggered when, you know, they brought something that, you know, dysregulated behavior. Um, and I, I, I know there are some programs that kind of bring mindfulness meditation to, to teachers. I, I don't know how effective those are, but I would think that it, it could be very helpful and not to put everything on the teachers because I think it's a whole system. You know, you have to have support administration, you have to have, you know, well-funded, well-resourced schools. It's not, you know, all about meditating all these terrible things away, but I think it is one strategy that helps in the moment. You know, when you're standing up in front of a class and someone says something that's really terrible, go to your breath and and then uh, come back and, um, I, I found that that really useful. And um, I, I, I think it, it would be nice if, if um, you know, more teachers had had that opportunity. You know, as you're, um, uh, I myself have a al- almost uh, 13 to 14 years of meditation pra- practice, and literally practice, not expertise. Um, I, however, had never done uh, silent uh, I mean, practice of silence. Uh, and I, I like to tell this funny story that my grandfather, who was a teacher, who would observe a noble silence on Mondays, and he would come to school and teach in silence. And so his students kind of adapted and just worked with that because that was his, you know, noble silence. So it's just funny. But anyway, um, uh, so I myself uh, started uh, during the pandemic. Uh, I- I'm about to finish my mindfulness meditation teacher training program. And so I started my, um, so thank you. So now I observe one day of silence a month, but I did seven days um, and then I've done 10 days now. So I've, um, so I'm building my, my, my uh, muscle, but you're right. I think what I love what you just said about this mindfulness practice, it's mostly uh, for self to recognize that I am not my thoughts. I think that has been the biggest and strongest discovery for myself. And I also fi- find that this kind of effortful ways, I mean, practiceful ways to uh, uh, build uh, your mental muscle of effort also kind of changes the way you empathize with others um, without really personalizing it or or internalizing that as a uh, somehow the barrier between you and others melts away. Um, is that something you also mm-hmm. notice that uh, um, once you sit in mindful uh, mindfulness, you invoking warmth and kindness towards others also <laughs> a little bit? I, I think it's really beautiful not to be reactive. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, for some children, that's what they want, you know, and that's what maybe they're used to at home is I do this, I get this big reaction. And if you can train that inhibition muscle, which I think is is something that that meditation does, you learn to sit and and not react, um, or at least create a little bit of space between, you know, the stimulus and, and the reaction. I think that's a gift to give other people and allows you to, I think, really see them more because you become more mm. of an observer um, instead of just diving into whatever you know, trauma or chaos um, I think that, you know, people can bring. And, um, you know, for a lot of students in a, a lot of environments, um, that I think that's a, a gift to, to give them. So as we think about, uh, uh, come to the end of our conversation, one of the topics that you have also uh, looked into is college students and their engagement uh, or multitasking in the classrooms with their laptops or devices. Um, can you share a little bit about the nature of that study and 
what were your intentions? And the findings were fascinating. Uh, so maybe we can talk about that. Sure. Uh, so I know I sound all over the place with my research, but this was when I was in graduate school. I was, um, you know, uh, TAing a, a course in, in psychology, um, and I noticed that you know all the students were on their laptops, you know, some watching movies, you know, wh- whatever, you know, unbelievable. <laughs> yes, I, I, I do. <laughs> and um, so I. Uh, we talked to the professor and we decided that we would, um, prompted by some other research, that we would create a screen-free zone and that these students would sit um, if you didn't want to um, be distracted because it turns out that screens are a little bit like smoking in the sense that secondhand screen use can affect you. So even if you're not using a screen, wow. if you sit next to someone who is, you can still be distracted by it. So we created this section of screen-free use, um, and you know, we found that individuals that sat in the screen-free section, you know, did better on our assessments and had better grades, which is very important for college students these days. But in, you may think, well, you know, those are just better students. You know, the A students were, were sitting there, and that may be the case. But something else interesting was what we found was after we gave the midterm. You know, students said, you know, I I really am disappointed with my grade and I'd like to do better in this course. We said, well, you know, we suggest you moving to the screen free zone and that individuals that moved from the screen to the screen free zone had the biggest jump in their scores. So it shows that not only even if you're not the type of person that chooses the screen free zone, if you kind of do that as a strategy or as an intervention, your, your grade will go up um, and or we show that on, on average it does. So I think that's really exciting. And it gets to this idea of multitasking. You know, it turns out that even if we believe that, you know, you're paying attention to the professor, but you're also on your laptop, um, that, you know, it's not as, uh, as effective. And there's lots of research showing that taking notes by hand is more effective than taking notes on the computer. So we really wanted to um, promote taking notes by hand. You know, and as um, you know, one thing that stands out for me is, uh, you know, we all want to do well, but the way we go about it may not be serving our purpose. And this willingness to change the path, so from sitting sitting in a screen non-free zone to screen-free zone is also a good choice. And do you need feedback of a bad grade to do it? Or are you going to do it in anticipation of a bad grade? So to me, that's such a telling process of executive function too, right? But I love that the that you create an environment where they could experiment with their own learning because that's how you evolve and get better. Some, some things we are blind to about our own ways and we need some failures to teach us. And, and But failures don't necessarily lead to strategic thinking. So I love that there were choices provided. Um, mm. and, and I think we talked about this during our prep, that uh, you yourselves uh, understood this change um, um, as, as instructors. Can you talk a little bit about uh, teachers? And I mean, this insight to me is very helpful for teachers to think as they're designing classrooms and wanting success for their students, they have to play with it. They have to be, show mental flexibility, right? Right. So for professors um, and, you know, for me as, as I was a TA, I get feedback from students. And when we told them not to use their laptops, the feedback tanked because this is a, you know, looking at they were mostly sophomore, junior, seniors in college. That's a really important age. I think now it's referred Mm. to emerging adulthood. So they're kind of playing around with, they want a lot of autonomy and a professor telling them, don't use your laptop. That's not really going to work. But what we do want is to encourage them to, you know, make the Mm. choice, make a smart choice and to kind of make it a little bit easier to make that choice. It's helpful because initially we had the, um, if you wanted to use a computer, you had to sit at the back of the the classroom and the students hated that. They felt like they were being punished. It triggered them to think about (laughs) school or, you know, um, 
younger. So they really didn't like that. And I think that's important feedback for this age group is, you know, they, they want autonomy and they crave autonomy. Um, and I think it's important to have it, but also seeing that the teacher ratings dropped just with that one change it also shows that maybe take the ratings with a little bit of a grain of salt because, um, you know, I, I think that's really important information. Um, but, but students, you have to make sure that students are also aware of why we're, we're doing things and, um, what, um, that, you know, so, some things might be, might seem a little painful because the idea of taking notes by hand, I read some research on this, People feel like they take better notes when they type everything out, but it turns out that that actually doesn't lead to better test scores. It's actually better to take notes by hand because you you take fewer notes, but when you write the notes down, you're condensing what you've learned, and it's Curated. more of it's it's more conducive to learning. Yeah, it's not mm. the stenographer. You know, writing everything down is not helpful, and moving students away from that is really challenging, but. It, it is actually what's what's best. Wonderful. So as we close uh, our uh, interview, I always love to ask my guests, uh, do you have any recommendations for us? Uh, any books that have come across your table that have influenced you positively or you think are uh, strong recommendations for our listeners and they can benefit from it? Ah, I would say that... Um, in my center at UCLA, the Center for Dyslexia, a lot of our work is based on Dr. Marianne Wolf's books. So her book, uh, Proust and the Squid and Reader Come Home, I would highly recommend those about, um, you know, uh, the brain basis of reading. And the second book is a little bit about the study I just spoke about. It's, you know, the impact of screens, you know, reading on screens versus uh, reading hardcover or you know, paper books, uh, you know, it's different. It's our, our brain process is it a little bit different. So I think both those books talk about executive functioning, reading, dyslexia, the brain. And um, and that's the uh, Reader Come Home. Reader Come Home is the yeah. second one. Yeah. Brilliant. The more recent one. Fabulous. Well, we can't wait to get your book in my hands so I can have you come back. Uh, uh, thank you so much for for uh, being on the podcast and uh, sharing your wisdom and knowledge. And uh, listeners, uh, that's all the time we have today. Thank you again uh, for joining in. Uh, you can see these are important conversations uh, and having all these uh, these amazing, knowledgeable, and incredibly qualified, passionate experts uh, provides us with a unique perspective, not just on our children that we may be taking care of or educating, but ourselves. So definitely, um, if uh, you loved what you're listening, share with your friends and family. Uh, definitely leave us a comment or a question. And lastly, uh, don't forget to subscribe to Full Prefrontal uh, using your favorite listening app. And uh, definitely look forward to seeing you all again right here next time on Full Prefrontal. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive function. To contact your host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive function, visit her website at exqinfinitenowhow.com. That's www.exqinfinitenowhow.com. Tune in next week for another informative episode of Full Prefrontal, hosted by the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath.